When someone says you ought to do something, what do they mean? What does ought imply? Now, if you're not sure, there's a good reason. When I looked it up in my Funk and Wagnalls, and those from the 70s will appreciate that phrase, I discovered it's an auxiliary verb that can mean three different things. It can mean, number one, to have a moral duty, to be obliged. A person ought to keep his promises. It can mean to be advisable, expedient, or proper. You ought to be careful. Or it can mean to be expected or anticipated as something probable, natural, or logical. You know, the engine ought to run. So what do we mean when we say, as Christians, as disciples, we ought to do certain things? Well, I think it can mean all three. And taking them in reverse order, when we become a Christian, people expect to see some changes in our behavior. We ought to become nicer people. We also understand that certain things are advisable for us. We ought to regularly read our Bible. And we understand that as a Christian, we are obligated to certain things. And it is to some of those obligations that we come this morning. The word translated ought in our text comes from the root to owe and means to be indebted. It speaks of our obligations. And even though the word itself doesn't appear until the end of our text, I think we find Jesus giving four oughts to his disciples in our passage for today. And if they are oughts for them, they ought to be our oughts as well. We're in the 17th chapter of Luke's Gospel, beginning with verse 1. And he said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. Now, as we've noted before, verse divisions are not actually part of the text. And there's disagreement about the placing of that first part of verse 3. It could go with either what went before it or after it. And as much as I hate to admit it, I agree with the NIV here. And I see it as a warning attached to what preceded it, a warning about causing a little one to stumble. Now, Jesus is addressing the disciples, but he had been speaking to the Pharisees, and he begins by referring back to the fact that the Pharisees had become stumbling blocks in the kingdom of God. As we've already seen, they scoffed at Jesus' teaching. They justified themselves and diluted the law. They hoarded riches and ignored the needs of others. And they did so all the while maintaining a self-righteous position in the community, holding themselves up as examples for everyone to follow. In doing so, they had become stumbling blocks on the road to God. 
Now, Jesus does acknowledge that it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. And the word actually means the bait holder in a trap. That's the stumbling block. It's, it's a lure in a trap. He's saying that it's inevitable that people will be lured off track and tempted to do wrong. But woe to the person through whom the temptation comes. Woe to anyone who leads someone astray. It would be better that they be given concrete tennis shoes and tossed into the river. than they should face God after causing a little one to stumble. And who would do such? Well, an evil person would, of course. And this would certainly apply to anyone who would intentionally lure others into the trap of sin. But I think Jesus is primarily focusing on someone else here. And thus the warning, be on your guard. He's talking to the disciples. He's warning them not to become stumbling blocks to little ones, even unintentionally. And we do all need to be careful that we're not setting stumbling blocks, setting traps for others. Doing so by the way we walk through life. We must constantly be on our guard with regard to the example we're setting. We've got to carefully walk through life because others are affected by what we do. And we must be very careful that we do not lead others into sin or even into the trap of harmful, addictive behaviors. Now, this was driven home to me as a teenager riding the bus in Springfield one day. I spotted a clergyman in a collar walking along the sidewalk smoking a cigarette. And so did a couple of girls sitting behind me. And I overheard one of them say to the other, See, it's okay to smoke. I told you. Now, that said something to me. I'd planned on being a preacher since I was six years old. And I thought, wow. Makes a difference what people see. You know, this man was annoyingly setting a trap for those girls that could very well destroy their bodies. What kind of example are we setting? By the way, we drive. Oops. Hmm. Enough said. You know, do we show disdain for the law or other drivers? Do we ever tell our kids to say we aren't home when we are? Do we set a temptation before others? When we imbibe alcoholic beverages, what kind of traps are we setting for others? We must never forget that little ones are following behind us. And while we might make it through without getting caught, they may stumble. They may get trapped. And it'll be our fault. Now, the little ones of whom Christ spoke might not necessarily be children. They could be anyone, young or weak. In the faith. There were times when it was obvious from the context he was talking about children when he referred to little ones. But children aren't in the picture here. He's talking to the disciples. And he's probably referring to those disciples who are spiritually weak 
and most prone to temptation. He's saying that those who are spiritually strong must be on guard for the sake of those who are weak. We must never forget that others are following behind us. Now, the story is told of an old man who had become noticeably agitated on his deathbed. And then he spoke up. And he revealed the source of his discomfort. He said, as a boy, I turned a sign at an intersection, and I was wondering how many travelers were sent on the wrong road by me. <laughs> I think that's a question we should all ponder. And we should do so long before our deathbed. We must be on our guard. We certainly ought to carefully walk through life. And we ought to lovingly forgive. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, the focus here is on forgiveness. But it's interesting that Jesus begins with confrontation. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. I'm sure some might respond to that with, but I thought we're not to judge. And it is true that we are not to pass judgment on someone's eternal destiny or their motives. But if God has revealed that something is sinful, we are not the ones judging that particular behavior. God is. And if we discern that a brother is caught up in a God-defined sin, we're obligated to rebuke him. We cannot ignore it and think by doing so we are showing love and forgiveness. Now, it is true that some things should be ignored. Personal slights and offenses should generally be brushed off and forgotten. Love covers a multitude of sins, and not every wrong demands a formal act of repentance and forgiveness. But obviously, sinful behavior must be rebuked. And the purpose for the rebuke is not to condemn, but to bring to repentance. That's why we discipline kids. You know, in spite of what they might think, we really do do it because we love them. We can't ignore behavior that might destroy their life. We have to step in and try to change it. Once the discipline is over and repentance is evident, we forgive and forget the offense. And that pattern ought to be followed in all our relationships. Loving confrontation should lead to repentance and repentance to forgiveness. And repentance must always be followed by forgiveness, no matter how hard it might be or how personal it might be. And Jesus does make it personal here. He says, if he sins against you. He's not only talking about some merely observed sinful behavior. He's talking about sinful behavior that directly affects you. If a brother sins against you and he repents, you must forgive him. 
And I don't think we should look for a loophole on forgiveness here and suggest that Jesus is only demanding that we forgive those who are our brothers. Now, he doesn't put that limitation on forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer. He's simply focusing here on the ones who can hurt us more deeply than others and who are therefore the hardest to forgive. Our brothers. And he makes it clear that this isn't to be merely a one-time offer of forgiveness. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, it would only be natural to question someone's sincerity if he sinned against you seven times in a day and said he was sorry seven times a day. But it's not our place to judge motives. That is God's responsibility. Our only obligation is to forgive. And as Jesus made it clear to Peter, there's no limit to the number of times we forgive those who sin against us. Not even seven times a day. If we've been forgiven, we ought to forgive. We must forgive. There's a time in our life when we had to be confronted with our sin. And when we repented, we were forgiven. That's the pattern we must follow with each other. As a disciple, we ought, we are obligated to lovingly forgive those who sin against us. Now, if that seems to you like too much to ask, you're not alone. Apparently, the disciples thought so, too. So Jesus went on to make it clear that as disciples, we ought to faithfully obey. And the disciples, or the, and now the apostles, said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. When told they ought to forgive someone seven times a day, the disciples said, increase our faith. They didn't think they had enough faith to forgive someone seven times. In one day, they said they needed more faith. Jesus responded by saying they didn't need any more faith. That if they had faith the size of a mustard seed, they could do anything. They could even do that which might appear to be impossible. They could speak the word. And a mulberry tree, which had roots so strong and deep that rabbis said they could last 600 years. They could just speak the word and it would be uprooted. And then they could speak the word and it would be planted in the depths of the sea. Now, I don't think Jesus is suggesting a new telepathic way for horticulturists to do their job. He's painting an exaggerated picture of something that would be impossible to do. He's obviously using figurative speech to say that if they had just a small amount of faith, they could do that which they were convinced would be impossible to do. They could forgive someone 
seven times in one day. And the reason they were told they could do such, do the impossible, without trying to conjure up a great amount of faith, was that the amount of faith one has is irrelevant. What matters is the object of one's faith. All the faith in the world in something untrue won't make it true. But just enough faith to act on something that is true is sufficient. And if their faith was in God, the amount of their faith would not matter. It doesn't take great faith in God to accomplish the impossible. All it takes is faith in a great God. And faith in God is demonstrated by simply taking Him at His word, believing He will do what He says He will do. Now, that's very important. For a couple of reasons. You know, some believe faith in God means he will do whatever they want him to do, whether he has said he will do so or not. But that's not faith in God. That's faith in faith. Faith in God is taking him in his word and faithfully obeying him. So if he tells us to do something, we do it. Even if we lack faith in ourselves to do it, we have faith in him. And we're confident that he will not tell us to do something that he will not enable us to do. If he tells us to forgive, we do it. And then we trust him to help us deal with our hurt feelings and the anger and resentment we might feel. As disciples, we must obey our Lord, whether we think we can or not. And if our attempts to obey him fall short, we trust that he will forgive us and take up the slack. He will enable us to accomplish the impossible if we'll faithfully obey him. Spiritual success, however, can lead to spiritual pride. And that brings us to our final ought. We ought to humbly do what he says. And realize that it's really no big deal. Verses 7 through 10. But which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I've eaten and drunk and afterwards... You will eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. I think Jesus here undercuts any tendency to think our service to him is meritorious. And he does so by talking about a master's expectations of his servant. 
He paints a picture of a slave working hard all day, plowing or tending sheep, and then coming home exhausted. He asked which one of them would meet the slave at the door and say, Oh my, you've worked so hard today. Sit down, let me fix you something to eat. It's a rhetorical question. No master would do that. Instead, the master would meet the servant coming through the door and ask, What's for dinner? Now, some of you wives may relate to that. It was not only expected that the servant work in the field, but that he or she care for needs around the home. And the master was hungry. So he expected the servant to get cleaned up and fix him something to eat. Once his obligations were fulfilled, he could then get himself something to eat. The master didn't feel it was necessary to show gratitude to the servant for doing that which he was obligated to do. And the slave didn't expect to be praised for doing what he was expected to do. The same should be true of us in relation to our master. When we do what we've been commanded to do, we shouldn't go looking for praise and recognition. Instead, we should simply recognize that we are unworthy slaves only doing what we ought to do. Our life, our life is one of obliged service. It's often motivated by gratitude for what he's done. But even if we do not feel grateful, we are still obligated to obey him and serve him. And no matter how great our service or our accomplishments for him, they will never repay what he did and continues to do for us. We will always be in his debt. And we are only doing what we ought to do. Now, if we truly believe that, we would never find ourselves hurt because we feel unappreciated by him or by those we serve in his name. And is there anyone we're not expected to serve in his name? I don't think so. Now, we do long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your master. Someday I long to hear that. But even his gratitude will be a gift we don't deserve. A disciple is simply expected to do what his Lord commands. So we walk carefully through life. We lovingly forgive, we faithfully obey, and we humbly serve. And we look for no immediate reward for doing so. We simply go through life trusting him and obeying him. That's 
what a disciple ought to do.